0: So, I don't know about you, but I hate squirrels. <laughs> and I'm reminded of my hatred of squirrels this time of year. Squirrels are chaos causing, destructive little animals. They tear up the yard, they tear up outdoor seat cushions, they tear up anything they get their squirrely little hands on. I hate squirrels. They cause chaos everywhere they go, uh, they're nuts. Uh, Pun intended. But as much as I hate squirrels, my youngest child, my daughter Abigail, she loves squirrels. And so I will often take Abigail to the front window, and there Abigail will wave to the squirrels, she will try to talk to the squirrels, uh, which is really cute because she's 18 months old. It's cute when an 18-month-old waves to squirrels and tries to talk to squirrels, but if someone my age talked to squirrels, that's a little crazy, right? It's crazy to try to talk to squirrels. Unless, of course, the squirrels actually obeyed, right? If I talked to squirrels and said, hey, get out of the yard, and they actually obeyed, that wouldn't be crazy. That would be amazing. So open your Bible up to Mark chapter 4, And here in Mark chapter 4 and in the beginning of Mark chapter 5, we hear Jesus speak to the sea. Jesus speaks to a man possessed by demons. Jesus speaks, and amazingly, things obey him. As you're turning to Mark chapter 4 and we think about this idea of Jesus speaking, I want you to understand that for the Hebrew people, What the Bible says is that the world was created by divine speech. God spoke things into existence. But also the Bible is clear that God created in the context of really spiritual warfare. God spoke into the context of spiritual warfare and God turned chaos into the creation And we see a similar idea here in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5 where Jesus speaks. He's on the sea, which in Hebrew thinking is the place of chaos and spiritual warfare. Then he's going to head into Gentile territory uh, where there are tombs, the place of death. And in both of those contexts, Jesus speaks in order to overcome chaos and death. Jesus speaks to the sea It obeys him and it is calmed. And Jesus speaks to the demoniac and the spirits obey him and the man is freed. Jesus speaks and things happen. Notice there on your outline in your bulletin, you can see we're going to look at two primary stories together this morning, true stories. First one demonstrates Jesus as the Lord of the cosmos, where he calms the chaos in the cosmos. Then number two on your outline, we're going to see Jesus as Dominus or Lord of the Decapolis, as he destroys the demons in the Decapolis. And then third, we'll talk about application, how these two stories demonstrating Jesus' authority should apply to us today. So grab your Bible. First, let's look at the end of Mark chapter 4. Jesus is Lord of the cosmos, calming the chaos in the cosmos. Mark chapter 4, notice first, verses 35 and 36. John Mark tells us, On that day, when evening came, he, Jesus, said to them, to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So remember last week we saw Jesus, uh, you know, giving the different parables, and he's, he's teaching people there in the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. But here in Mark chapter 35... Jesus tells his disciples on that same day, he says to his disciples, let us go to the other side. The other side is Gentile territory. So Jesus tells his disciples, all right, let's go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the Decapolis cities, or the ten cities that at this time were Roman cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus and his disciples, they get into a few boats and they're going over into enemy territory, so to speak, to Gentile territory. But notice that on their way there, verse 37 tells us, and there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And so on the way, on the way to the journey on the other side of the Sea of Galilee over into Gentile territory, on the way there, this ferocious storm breaks out on the Sea of Galilee so much that the water started pouring into the boat. And by the way, if this seems absurd, uh, I've seen pictures on the Sea of Galilee I've been on the Sea of Galilee, thankfully never was there a storm, but I've seen pictures of storms on the Sea of Galilee where 10-foot tall waves crashed into the today modern city of Tiberias. Amazing storms can break out on the Sea of Galilee. But what we're going to see here is that this storm is no ordinary storm. This is a supernatural storm. Storm. And again, I want you to keep in mind that for the Hebrew people, as they thought about cosmology or the way the world was created and the way the world works, for the Hebrew people, uh, the sea represents the place of chaos. The sea represents a place of chaos. Inti Wright says this, he says, the sea came to symbolize the dark power of evil threatening to destroy God's good creation, God's people, God's purposes. The sea is where the monsters come from. Again, as the Hebrew people thought about, and this is what the Bible says, the creation of the world, God spoke the world into existence, but it was also in a context of chaos. And now the sea is symbolic of that chaos. For the Hebrew people, the sea is the natural dwelling place of demons and evil spirits. And they believed that God and only God could subdue the chaos monster who lived there in the sea. And they looked forward to the day when one day God as the divine warrior would battle and conquer the chaos represented by the sea. And so Jesus here in Mark chapter 4 is heading truly into enemy territory, not into Gentile territory. They're not the enemy. But he's heading now into the true territory of the enemy, the Sea of Galilee. But what's amazing, I want you to notice this in verse 38. Jesus is headed into the sea, into enemy territory, the place where demons are. But he's asleep. Notice verse 38. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they, the disciples, woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Well, you have to love the humor and the irony of this, right? Jesus is heading into the sea, and we're going to notice that this sea is no ordinary, or this storm is no ordinary storm. This is demonic activity that's taking place. Jesus knows this full well, but he himself here is on the boat now asleep, not because, notice what the disciples say, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus is asleep not because he doesn't care but because even when he's asleep he's in control. And this is a thing we need to remember in our difficult situations as well when it seems as though God is distant, when it seems as though God is indifferent, he's not indifferent, he's still in control. Jesus shows no worry because he is Lord of the cosmos. And he demonstrates that authority next. Notice verse 39. And he, Jesus, got up and notice, rebuked the wind. He spoke to the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Notice Jesus as Lord of the cosmos. He speaks to the creation and it obeys him. He speaks, he rebukes the wind, and he says to the sea, Hush, be still, or literally, be muzzled. Now, this is key for you to understand that verb for be still or be muzzled is used often by Mark as a technical term in the context of spiritual oppression and deliverance or exorcism. We see Jesus already in the Gospel of Mark. He spoke to the demons and told them to be still, to be quiet, to say nothing. And Mark is piggybacking off of this imagery. But at the command of Jesus, at the speech of Jesus, the wind stops and the lake, the Sea of Galilee, becomes perfectly calm. Jesus speaks and even creation obeys. Look now in verse 40, Jesus speaks again, this time to his disciples. He said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus here rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. I mean, don't they know who is in the boat there with him? They've seen all the miracles of Jesus. They've seen up to this point what he's done, and that should have been evidence enough, but yet they are there in their fear. They're, they're frightened over what's taking place around them. Jesus is asleep. It looks like the world is disintegrating into chaos, and so they wake him up, and Jesus rebukes them and says, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Their fear showed that they had no confidence or no Understanding of who it was that was there with them. But by calming the storm, Jesus did what only God can do. He demonstrates his authority as Lord of the cosmos. I do, however, love the question that the disciples ask. This question really is the major question of this portion of the Gospel of Mark. Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now as significant as this storm was, this demonic storm, there is actually, ironically, a greater threat that is present. And it's the disciples' fear and faithlessness which is what Jesus rebukes them for here. But like I said, this was no ordinary storm. When you first read this story here in the Gospel of Mark, it appears as though Jesus is just operating on the physical level, in the physical realm. But like I've pointed out throughout these verses, actually what Mark does here is he very interestingly uses a language of spiritual warfare here. At first glance, this is just a story about Jesus calming the Sea of Galilee. But on the deeper level, below the surface, this is a story of spiritual warfare. Throughout these verses, Mark uses this language of spiritual warfare. Jesus rebukes the storm, which is the same word he used to rebuke the demons. Jesus spoke to the storm and issued silence and a muzzling over it, just like he did the same with the demons in chapter 1. Mark is highlighting here that this storm is more than just a typical storm, but he's using this language of spiritual exorcism from nature itself. In all of this, Mark is showing that Jesus is demonstrating himself as Lord of the cosmos by calming the chaos around the disciples. This is number one on your outline. Now let's take a look at number two where Jesus demonstrates himself as dominus of the Decapolis by destroying the demons. Mark chapter 5, notice first verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea. So that's where they were headed. They're going to the other side, into Gentile territory. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. Again, this is Gentile territory, the Decapolis cities. And notice, immediately, once they arrive in Gentile territory, verses 2 and 3 say, when he, Jesus, got out of the boat, immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he, the man, had his dwelling among the tombs. And so immediately, as Jesus gets out of the boat, as Jesus and his disciples arrive into Gentile territory, Jesus is immediately confronted by this demonically possessed man. Immediately, Jesus gets out of the boat and this man encounters Jesus, confronts Jesus. He comes out of the tombs. And in verses three through five, we get a very vivid description of this man's pathetic condition, the spiritual oppression that is ruling over him. Notice again verse three. He had his dwelling among the tombs, No one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broke in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Take note of that last phrase. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing or cutting himself with stones. Just notice the, the behavior that's exhibited in this demon-possessed man. And by the way, in an ancient document, Hebrew document, called the Talmud, uh, the, there are four characteristics of people who are insane or mad or demon-possessed that the Talmud identifies. First, a mad person spends time, especially the night, in a grave. Check. Check. Second, a mad person tears things apart. Check. Third, they walk around at night. Check. And finally, they destroy anything given to them, even their own bodies. Check. Mark is very vividly describing just the severity of the spiritual oppression that this man is caught in. By the way, when it comes to demonic oppression, demonic oppression is something that Satan has been doing from the very beginning. And from the very beginning, I believe Satan's number one tactic is to distort and destroy the image of God in men and women. This is key for you to understand. We're going to come back to it in a little bit. But Satan's tactic from the very beginning, because we are created in the image of God, Satan's tactic is to distort and destroy the very image of God in men and women. He does this sometimes through demonic possession, but other times he does it simply through demonic oppression. So let me ask you a question, and we're going to come back to this in a little bit. How does Satan today in 2023, attempt to distort and destroy the image of God in men and women? I want you to think about that, and we're going to come back to it here in a little bit. How does Satan today attempt to distort and destroy the image of God in men and women? And notice again here in the text that the power of this demonic oppression is extreme. Notice the end of verse 4. No one was strong enough to subdue him. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And yet, this strong man, possessed by the legion of Satan's demons, is about to be dispossessed by the stronger man. Notice what happens in verse 6, 7, and 8. Seeing Jesus from a distance... He, the man, ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had been saying to him, the man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Again, Jesus speaks into the chaos. By the way, it's really interesting, when you look at the Gospel of Mark, some of the highest statements of Jesus' Christology, or who he is, his authority, come from the mouths of demons. Back in chapter 1, a demon called Jesus the Holy One of God. In chapter 3, a demon called Jesus Son of God. And now, the highest, the superlative statement of all, Son of the Most High God, comes again from a man possessed by a demon. The demon understands who it is that stands before him. The son of the most high God. And Jesus speaks to him. Notice again verse 9. And he, Jesus, was asking him, the man and the demon inside of him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore Jesus Jesus, earnestly not to send them out of the country. So as Jesus now speaks to this man, to the demon inside of him, he says, what is your name? The demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. The word for Legion is a Latin word commonly known in Israel at this time to describe the Roman army regiment that resided there. You know that the Romans were oppressing the nation of Israel at this time, and they sent in the Roman legion, part of the Roman army, to occupy this area of Israel. And this legion now of demons is residing within this man. But notice again, the demon understands who he's dealing with. And so the demons beg Jesus not to, to send them out. They know who they're dealing with and they're terrified. So notice verse 11. Now there was a large herd of squirrels. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, There was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Remember, the sea is the place of chaos. The sea is the place where demons live. And so Jesus speaks, he gives permission to these demons and they go into the swine and the swine run down the steep cliff and straight into the sea, the place of chaos, the very place from which Jesus just came, the very place that he just calmed. Ironically, Jesus sends the demons into the waters that the disciples thought were going to kill them. And now this mass herd of swine, now possessed by the demons, commit mass suicide there in the Sea of Galilee. This is an amazing story, isn't it? Now, starting in verses 14 through 20, we get two very different responses to what Jesus does here. To very different responses to the authority of Jesus as Dominus of the Decapolis. First, we see the negative response. Notice verse 14. Their herdsmen ran away. The pigs, herdsmen, ran away and reported it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, now sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion. And they became frightened. But notice, those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. But they began to implore him, Jesus, to leave their region. Sadly, as word spread about what Jesus has done, even after seeing the evidence before them of now this man formerly demon-possessed by a legion of demons, rather than falling before the dominus of the Decapolis, the people implore Jesus to leave their region, get out of here. Now in contrast to them, notice the positive response in verse 18. Being asked to leave, notice verse 18, as he, Jesus, was getting into the boat to leave. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him. There we see that word again. He was imploring him that he might accompany him or follow him. But Jesus did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he, the man formerly demon-possessed, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed." you got to love this. This man seeing Jesus leave, he sees Jesus get on the boat. He runs up to Jesus and he begs Jesus if he can follow Jesus. But Jesus sends the man away because he has a mission for this guy. He says, I want you to go to your own people, to your Gentile people, there in the Decapolis cities, and I want you, this demon-possessed man, formerly demon-possessed man, to go tell the people the amazing things that the Lord has done for you. Jesus speaks and this man obeys. Mark tells us he goes into the Decapolis and he proclaims the great things that the Lord has done for him and everyone was amazed. This is an incredible story. But like the first story, Jesus calming the storm on the sea, so this story also has something below the surface. There's more than meets the eye. See, on the surface of this story, it's just a story of Jesus amazingly casting out demons, which is incredible, but there's something below the surface here as well. Remember in the first story of Jesus calming the sea, Mark loaded it with spiritual warfare terminology, right? What's interesting is here in this story, a story of spiritual warfare, Jesus or John Mark uses political and military language. Political and military language here in this story. Again, the word legion would have called to mind the Roman legion that was occupying Israel at this time. And even the pigs... What's going on with the pigs? Why does Jesus allow the demons to go into the pigs? That's such a weird thing, right? Well, I believe it's because the 10th Roman Legion is the specific legion that was occupying Israel at this time. The 10th Roman Legion And if you Google the Tenth Roman Legion, if you Google the banner or the symbol of the 10th Roman Legion occupying Israel in the first century, one of their main symbols that they carried on their banner was a pig. A pig. So N.T. Wright says this. He says, for the century or so before Jesus' time, the whole area had been overrun by the Romans. The legions had marched in and taken over and most people saw them as the enemy, as Satan incarnate. He says many in that area must have longed to see the Romans pushed back into the Mediterranean Sea, the place where monsters come from. Rome was the monster of all monsters. Rome was unclean. Rome was a nation of pigs and the best place for Rome was back in the sea. And that's where the pigs go. But what's interesting about this story is that while most Jews were concerned about Rome occupying Israel, Jesus was concerned about the demons occupying people. And throughout this section, Jesus now demonstrates his authority as dominus over the Decapolis by destroying the demons who occupied this man. So again, there's a lot going on in these two stories, right? You see both of them centered really around the sea, the place of chaos. You see Jesus demonstrating his authority as Lord of the cosmos, as Dominus over the Decapolis. You see Jesus demonstrating his authority over the physical realm, over the spiritual realm, and now even over the political realm. In this first story, Jesus calms the sea, the physical realm, but it's filled with spiritual warfare terminology. Then in the second story, You see Jesus uh, freeing this man from demonic oppression, but it's filled with political imagery and terminology. So the question is, now number three on your outline, what do we do with a passage like this? How do we take this fascinating passage, these two incredible stories of Jesus' authority and apply it to our life today. When we see Jesus demonstrating his authority as Lord of the cosmos and Dominus of the Decapolis, as Jesus is demonstrating his authority over the physical realm, spiritual realm, and political realm, what do we do? How does this apply to us? We're confronted with the absolute authority of Jesus. His authority over the physical realm like the sea, the wind, and the waves. His spiritual authority over the chaos of the waves and the demons that are oppressing this man. And we see also this hint of Jesus' political authority as well. Let's get academic for just a second, if you'll put on your thinking caps with me for just a moment. Since the Enlightenment period, or the so called Enlightenment period, we have bifurcated the physical realm from the spiritual realm. We've separated these two ideas out, and we treat them as though they're two totally different realms, two totally different spheres of existence. We've bifurcated these ideas, and then even in the last few years, we've trifurcated these ideas and we've completely separated out the physical realm, the spiritual realm, and the political realm, right? Um, the modern world in which we live, we, we treat things as though the spiritual realm doesn't even exist anymore. Everything's about the physical realm and unfortunately politics is something we just don't talk about because we're afraid of getting canceled, right? And so we've completely split apart these ideas as though they're three separate realms. But biblically, when you look at, a, 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 at things from a biblical worldview, they are inseparable ideas. You cannot separate out The physical realm from the spiritual realm from the socio-political realm. They coincide together. And I believe we committed a massive mistake by separating these ideas out in our culture. They exist together here in this passage, and they exist together in reality. We are physical people, we are spiritual people, and we are socio-political people. And they must be looked at together. So earlier, I asked you a question. How is Satan today actively seeking to distort and destroy the image of God in mankind today? In the physical, spiritual, sociopolitical realms. How in the physical, spiritual, sociopolitical realm is Satan attacking God's image in men and women today? Now, this is the part where, like the disciples in the boat who are a little afraid, this is where I get a little afraid. This is the part where I might get into trouble or get canceled or whatever. But I'm convinced right now the biggest issue where Satan is actively attacking, distorting, and destroying the image of God in men and women, boys and girls, is in all of this gender fluidity, gender identity, gender dysmorphia stuff. We are being bombarded with it right now. And I think this is a satanic attack that he, Satan, is using to attack the image of God in men and women, boys and girls. So the question is, what do we do about it? How do we, as the people of God, trusting the guy who's in the boat, how do we respond? Well, notice what Jesus does. Jesus has compassion on the guy who's being oppressed. Jesus has compassion, mercy, verse 19 of chapter uh, 5, on the man who is being oppressed. Second, Jesus is not afraid, though, to speak the truth into the spiritual oppression that's happening. He speaks and things obey. He doesn't fight fire with fire. But he does fight falsehood with truth. And I think the same should be true for us. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of spiritual fortresses. So listen, I know that you're being bombarded with this stuff right now. It's in the headlines, it's in your workplaces, all of this stuff, it's everywhere. So what do you do? How do you respond? Three things. Number one, I would say pray like crazy to the Lord of the cosmos, to the Dominus of the Decapolis, to the guy in the boat who's got control over everything, to the one who can speak and things respond. Secondly, I believe we're to have compassion on all people. Jesus has compassion on people who are being oppressed, and we should as well. And third, just like Jesus does here, I think we are called to speak the truth, to have the courage to speak the truth of the gospel and of God's word into our chaos-inducing culture. Oh, look, a squirrel. change the subject. Uh, I do hate squirrels. Uh, Believe it or not, I don't hate people. This is not a hate speech, but I do hate squirrels. I've tried everything I can do to get rid of squirrels. I've tried sprays. I've tried a little plastic owl in the backyard, but whatever I do, squirrels will not obey me. They won't leave the yard. But when you look at Jesus, even the wind and the waves obey him. He speaks, and his word is the only thing that will combat the darkness. He's Lord of the cosmos. He's Dominus of the Decapolis. He's Lord over the physical, spiritual, and socio-political realms of life. Let's trust him and let's not be afraid. Would you pray with me? Father, we do confess that like the disciples in the boat, at times it surely seems like Things are disintegrating into chaos and at times it seems as though things might be dissolving even outside of your control. So forgive us, Father, when we have a lack of faith, when we fail to remember that the one in the boat is the Lord of the cosmos, he's dominus of the Decapolis, he is Lord and master over our life our physical, spiritual, and socio-political life as well. Father, help us, like Jesus, to have compassion on those who would disagree with us. Help us not to fight fire with fire, but to combat falsehood with truth, to combat hate with love, so that more and more people might come to know the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness that Jesus has freely given Help us to rest in his forgiveness. Help us to have the faith to trust him, even when things get difficult. And Father, now as we turn our attention to this table, to the Lord's Supper and communion, I pray that you would bind us together with one another into your word, that you would empower us and send us out into our world to take this message of Jesus' death and resurrection to a lost and dying world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.